Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial topics with interesting people. And my guest this week is Robbie Suave. Uh, Robbie is a senior editor at Reason Magazine. He's the author of Panic Attack, a book about cancel culture, as well as his most recent book, Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook or the Future. You also might know him from his frequent appearances on news programs across the political spectrum, um, and also from his amazing and stellar reporting on a whole host of subjects at Reason, including, I think, relevantly to the kind of frame that he takes to this big tech uh, discussion, getting out ahead of big media panics in situations like the Covington kids case, the Rolling Stone UVA rape story. Both of those turned out to ha- be wildly different um, than how they were initially reported. Um, and and so I think he's kind of carved out a niche for himself here, uh, telling the rest of us not to panic about things. And and, and he's often been right in in uh, in advancing that that narrative. So, Robbie, welcome to High Noon. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk with you. So let me know, um, why shouldn't we panic about big tech? Because it does seem to be getting very scary. And as you point out, there's a certain um, confluence of, of, or at least uh, there's, there's a certain fear that's shared on the left and the right about where we are going in terms of social media, big tech companies, and the left and the right kind of have different concerns and you address them throughout this book one at a time. Um, but why, like, what's the basic bottom line? Why aren't you panicking like the rest of us? Social media is a new uh, development, a new innovation in the communication space, uh, one in a long history of new developments in the communication space. And with all the previous inventions, new ways of talking to each other, sharing ideas, communicating, there have always been problems that arise because of these these, these new forms, everything from video games to television to the radio to the phonograph to the written word, the printing press, etc. Um, there's been a lot of, there's always been a lot of concern, a lot of paranoia, a lot of panic about how these things were going to change society. But I make the case that overall, they usually mostly make society better. The change is good. There are some problems and we are definitely seeing some problems with social media. Don't get me wrong. I'm not one to to say that every single thing that that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Google have wrought is good. But my main point in the book is is two things. One, that while I agree with some of the concerns, I think many others are overstated. I also think the solutions on the table range from would not address the problem to would make things much, much worse. And then three, did I say two things? I really meant three things. The third thing being that we tend to discount the positive, the benefit of social media, the way it has made our lives better. I think this is especially true on the right. I think there's been a lot of anti-big tech kind of rhetoric and writing in conservative media that glosses over the fact that on the whole, social media has been, I think, pretty inarguably a net positive for conservative, provocative, contrarian, communicating and messaging. And we we should be glad that social media has provided this. So let's be careful if we're talking about doing things to tweak social media that we don't end up hurting ourselves. You're in the very funny position of defending um, what everybody is doing, right? But doesn't like in abstract, right? But in terms of their revealed preferences, we all spend a lot of time on social media, or at least a lot of us do. Um, so let's start with that issue, the issue of addiction or how much time we're spending uh, interacting on social media and on the internet more generally. Um, you know, that was the subject of some of this, the recent whistleblower hearings, quote unquote, um, that we heard in Congress. You know, why are you not 
worried um, about how much time particularly young people are spending in the digital space as opposed to the real 3D space. Right. Yeah. The, uh, Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, came forward with more information and it, you know, it's treated as this big revelation. But as far as I could tell, it was mostly information we already know, which is that, you know, smartphone uh, dependency being on social media too much can absolutely be a problem for some teenagers. I think parents should are, are correct to and should do more of this to actually limit the amount of time their kids spend on social media. You know, don't try to keep phones out of the bedroom so they go to bed at a healthy time. But I'm really, I don't think the data supports the, the kind of more uh, dramatic concerns. A lot of kids are, are benefit from spending time on social media because they're interacting uh, with their friends. And it can be, they can fight with them. They, they, sometimes it could make them sad or depressed. But I bet if you asked all these kids, you know, a small, a significant minority were saying, especially if teen, teenage girls were saying that they have depression and it really does stem from Instagram. I would wonder what would happen if you would survey them on how high school makes them feel. I bet you would find a huge majority of teenagers saying that like many days going to school makes them, makes them depressed during normal times. I bet you'd also find that being forced to stay in their rooms and not interact with anyone outside their immediate family, as we asked of them during the pandemic, was really, really promoting of, of, of like unhealthy teen mental problems, which actually social media was sort of alleviating. I, I think probably teenagers were lucky that they did have this fall, but not a, a good way of communicating. You know, we want actual get out there in the world, do, do sports, do activities. But this was better than nothing. Um, and, when I, and specifically when you look at the kids who use social media the most, who are using it all the time, you do see some self-reporting of negative emotions, but you also see that among kids who aren't using social media at all. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical that, uh, and, and also, you know, we're, we're living through an era where people are much more open about talking about their mental health, how they're feeling on the inside, their traumas, their triggers, that kind of thing. So it wouldn't, it, it doesn't actually surprise me if you're seeing in survey results that more people, more young people are comfortable saying that they're having trauma. In fact, on college campuses, having trauma is like a way to gain power in progressive activist circles. So I'm, I, we're kind of like sloppily correlating it with, or, or, or saying it's caused explicitly by social media in ways that I'm just not quite convinced of. So I, I definitely think, you know, look out for, for this. Parents should limit the amount of time their kids spend on their devices. That's fine. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing anything to, to suggest like, oh, this is just like ruining kids. And then I'm, I'm cognizant of the recent moral panics, like the ones over violent video games or, or what have you, which all turned out to be pretty wrong in retrospect. So, I mean, I don't think many people, I, I'm not saying no one, but I don't think many people would say that social media has no social, you know, it's called social media, like that has no social benefits, right? I mean, um, I think we're about the same age. So we both probably started out on AOL Messenger. Mm -hmm. yep. I know I only learned how to type properly because I wanted to talk to my friends on AOL yep. Messenger. I was not convinced by my typing classes in school that it was important at all until I wanted to be able to dash off all of those messages to my friends in those blinking little windows, which I'm really dating myself here. Um, but, you know, it seems to me that early on in the sort of social media evolution and how much it's gotten into our lives, it was in service of real life 
relationships more often than not and rather than the other way around, right? So, um, and this is something that Tim Cartney has written about. It's something that, um, you know, I've tweeted about in the past, but there is a real benefit to using these social media devices if you're going to be connecting with people eventually, whether it's reconnecting with people you used to know in real life or even using social media. I know I've found real life friends on Twitter who are now my like good friends and come over to my house for dinner. And it seems to me that's a very positive thing. But on the flip side, we've all seen and probably more often than we like to admit, been the person who is literally, you know, at a dinner with friends on the phone or, um, you know, you see couples sitting in a restaurant and they're both checking their phones instead of talking to each other. I mean, don't you think that at some point, especially with the introduction of the smartphone and the, the way that we can carry social media with us at all times um, and and uh, and the way that it's structured in terms of pinging us all the time, which you can change, but the default is that it pings you all the time and sort of alerts you to attention all the time. You don't think that that's really that life has a danger of overwhelming a real life in, in unhealthy ways. I mean, maybe it does, but so did I, 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 this, this was something that was said of having the television on all the time or during dinner, right. Or having the radio on all the time there in in my book, I, I, I found countless examples of, uh, of, uh, of newspapers in particular, hating the idea that anyone would, would, spend their time instead of reading a newspaper, listening to the radio or watching television and all this dramatic about how we'll never have human interaction again, because people will just be listening to things or watching things. And they, they were warned of, of, of how, how, how alienating it would be to, to have these other forms of communication. So I have all of that in mind um, when, you know, when we talk about these same things, because a lot of, a lot of people are using social media to communicate with other people. Maybe, I mean, it, you're right. It, it, it's odd to sit around with actual human beings and have everybody in their phones. Like it, it's, it's a weird thing. It, it can be very unhealthy. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to discuss, you know, whatever strategies we have for making healthier choices about putting our, our, our phones away. Sometimes I totally support that. Um, but people, I mean, I expect that people are probably using these technologies because they want to, and it makes them happy, not because they're mindless and have no self-control and the technology has totally hacked our brains and we're not like free autonomous individuals anymore. I just don't really buy that. Um, I, you, you know, you, you, and th- I mean, even young, there's some young people, right. That, that they're, they're lonely and they don't have friends and maybe they don't get along with their siblings or they, they, and, and they can, they can find like, you know, the nerdy kids, they can find communities of gamers and, and musical people and things like that. And there's just like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of upside to it. It it can be bad, but I'm just not seeing, I'm not seeing the, I'm not seeing the panic, which is why I'm, I'm arguing against it. I, I absolutely think parents should be, should be cognizant of what their young people are doing on social media and should set reasonable limits. I was, when I was a kid, I was only allowed to play an hour of video games a day I was, I would be, I would be kicked off AOL Instant Messenger just, just like you when my parents got, thought I'd been on it for too long. Um, that was healthy and, and those choices should absolutely still, still be made and should still devolve to, uh, to parents. But I just, I don't really see a, and, and I mean, then the implication of what we're talking about is right. Well, should the government do something about it? And I, I, A, I don't really know what they could do about it that is, like going to necessarily withstand some kind of like First Amendment challenge. And I just, I don't see the point. 
You know, let's let's talk about I think the issue that's most concerning to the right in all of this, which is the censorship, right? The censorship issue, and and you don't dispute here that at least for the most part that um, folks on the right and then increasingly some part of the dissident left that isn't really sort of on the Joe Biden train or, or on the sort of establishment left train, but essentially people from the parts of the political spectrum that are, are not in power, um, whether that's on the left or the right, that you don't dispute that they are getting censored on this app. But you do make what I think is a really good point, and you alluded to it in the beginning when we started talking, but um, it's easy to forget what came before social media, which was the three networks, right? Maybe plus Fox, um, where there was much tighter gatekeeper control over information, which I think is a really good point you make. Um, But I guess, don't you think we're moving back towards that kind of situation, like a sort of three network type situation where um, you know, information that doesn't fall into a mainstream narrative is increasingly difficult to access or acquire. Because I don't think anyone is saying we should eliminate social media altogether, but you don't worry about the same kind of problems developing in social media that did develop in the consolidation of the networks. Well, I do worry about it. I mostly worry about it because the government, particularly the Biden administration, seems increasingly inclined to dictate to social media companies what their policies should be. And those companies are not really they're, they're not being courageous at all. They are they are kind of saying, OK, whatever you want, don't hurt us. Um, although, I, you know, I would say they don't really have anyone in their corner legislatively because maybe in a different era, Republicans would have and, well and Republicans have criticized that specific aspect of it. But I, I feel like they don't think they have a lot of political allies and 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 then they have to fear their own employees and they have a lot of different problems. But my fear is mostly from the government end. And that is the end that we can do something about. Right. The marriage of big tech and big government is a huge problem. But big, theoretically, at least, we can change the policies of the big government it is it is like the it is the harder and in more indirect path to do something to change the policies of these companies that are private companies and i i still think that you know if i'm looking at the landscape for not for what i call like non-liberal speech just exactly what you described conservative very conservative right wing and then also contrarian provocative and some lefty dissident type stuff and i'm looking you know overall the landscape for it looks pretty solid and pretty healthy to me. I haven't seen a great contraction of it, um, despite, you know, the, the, the frequent bad moderation decisions. It, it seems like the ecosystem is still thriving. I, you know, I see, I check often what is the top, um, the top articles on Facebook are very often article uh, pieces of content produced by uh, Ben Shapiro or Dan Bongino or Tucker Carlson or a, a bunch of other uh, 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 very conservative media content creators that seem to be thriving. So I, I, it is perfectly fine to be wary. And I think the Biden administration has given us additional reason to be wary, but I'm, I'm just, I, I, what I am still seeing is that we broadly speaking, then you can run into trouble. You know, you can get, you can get deplatformed kind of arbitrarily. It does happen to people, but it, it still seems like we're living through a golden age of being able to communicate these ideas to vast numbers of people. And, uh, and I, I mean, I, you, you know, you acknowledge this, but we have to be really careful about messing that up because if anything, the hostility of the mainstream media to 
non-liberal ideas has increased like exponentially. Like the New York Times will never consider running an op-ed from a Republican senator ever again. That is their level of bias. And they hate social media most of all. So it's kind of like it's like an, the enemy of my enemy is, well, maybe they're not my friend, but I, I have to be really careful if I try to hurt them because my enemy really wants that. Yeah, and I do think you make it, it is a good admonition, I think, um, especially for those of us who are really concerned about uh, this this whole phenomenon to remember what, the situation is like without these kind of democratizing, small d democratizing elements, right? Um, the, 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 the fact that you point to that there is a ton of conservative content that's doing very, very well on Facebook and that Facebook has given um, essentially voices outside of the mainstream an ability to reach people that was completely non-existent um, before these, these um, social media companies and social media generally became a primary place to have public square type discussions, right? Um, So I I do think that's a good admonition. But I guess another thing I agree with you on, but I guess it it scares me in a different way, is I see the same collusion developing between government and these companies. Uh, But what I'm really worried about is I see increasingly it's being used and not just in the tech space, but in generally in the private sector. Um, It's being used to get things done for government that the constitution would prevent the government directly from doing. Right. So um, the, the, the federal government obviously cannot directly censor uh, citizens. The, the first amendment forbids that they can't take any action that would censor citizens, but what they can do is, you know, drag some of these guys into a hearing nod, nod, wink, wink. We are extremely disappointed in you that you allowed Donald Trump or whomever um, to continue proliferating, quote unquote, misinformation on your platform. And they, you know, they get the message, they get the threat, the implied threat there, and they get the message. Um, and and it, it works even outside of the tech context. Like I, I have a, a sort of sideways theory of, of the vaccine mandate that the Biden administration is still in the process of rolling out. And that's that essentially announcing that mandate was a that signal to corporate America to go ahead and enforce that, which they largely have started. That's why we have this whole Southwest mess and all of that. Corporate America has largely started independently enforcing this vaccine mandate, even though the mandate doesn't exist yet. It hasn't been rolled out. And depending on how they roll it out, it likely is going to have massive legal problems um, and may very well be struck down constitutionally. And yet, that bat signal has already gone out. That threat's already kind of been leveled, that nod, nod, wink, wink, which is half threat and half just, you know, the right people think this way. And the same type, they have a sort of monoculture between the government and these corporations that makes it very, very difficult for, for you know, people who might disagree to fight back versus when they're fighting back directly against government, where we do have a system that protects their individual liberties through the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, it's very bad if you live under kind of blue authority. If your rulers are team blue, then you are going to be forced to have a vaccine mandate. If you live under sort of team red rules and red authorities, you might be prohibited from having a vaccine mandate. And I'm over here like, couldn't maybe we could just like let individuals and, you know, individual firms and communities of people and groups who are voluntarily in each other's business and socializing, they can set what the rules would be. But like, no, it has to take place in this very bitter political struggle where it must everything must be forced 
or or prohibited. And I mean, it's just very unhealthy and very bad. I actually, I think maybe we disagree on this. I, I feel like there are certainly private entities that are now going to have vaccine mandates that wouldn't have necessarily had them before because they feel like they have, I mean, they don't, they don't want to, they're not ideological enough to make some kind of stand, or they might've been able, they might've implemented a vaccine mandate, but had some kind of more reasonable um, opt out for people who like, they'll tell people we really want you to get vaccinated. You should really get vaccinated. And they won't, they won't absolutely enforce it or they, or they might allow, which would be the most reasonable um, provision of all, which is just to exempt people who've already, who have a prior infection, who we now know from the data are, you know, reasonably protected. We don't know if it's a little bit better, a little bit worse than vaccine, but it looks pretty good to me. And that, and again, why the Biden administration didn't (laughs) think to do that to make their, their mandate, like even more kind of practical or pragmatic. I don't know. Um, But, but anyway, so yeah, your broader point I take, I don't like the monoculture either. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't like, but a lot of these, you know, we're, we're like focusing on the last part of the last link in a very long chain, right? Well, why, why do companies like Facebook do some of the things they do again, you know, retaliate against conservative speech? Well, it's not really that Mark Zuckerberg feels that way, as far as I can tell. It's that some of the employees at his company are the kind of woke type activist people who are like utterly demanding these changes. And a lot of companies, a lot of places, media environments, communication companies, they're caving to appease like very unreasonable baby type people who were produced by this dreadful education system. You know, but so then if we talk about like what big policy changes should we go forward with to address this problem? I'd be like, we should target the education system in some way. Again, that's a thing we can actually do, right? Government funding of education can be changed theoretically. Whereas that, so that makes more sense to me that, well, so how can we, how can we hit these companies now? It's like too late to do anything. It wouldn't, it's very kind of a fraught process. Um, So we should just push back as much as we can if government is making them do things and, and, and they are and, 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 and that sort of thing. And I wish, but I also wish more Republicans on Capitol Hill were kind of making the point that there ought to be this, this difference. And, and often what you're hearing in these, in these uh, tribunals of, for Facebook, for Zuckerberg endorsing others, it's like, well, don't follow their rules, follow our rules. And I mean, the, and then these hearings end up being tremendously frustrating because no one knows what they're talking about. And it's, it's clear that like, what is the company supposed to decide when this group of people are yelling at them for these reasons, this group of people are yelling at them for these reasons, no one's going to agree, except there's going to be regulation. That's probably going to be bad. That Facebook even supports, right? That's the other, the other part of this. Facebook is come out in favor of some reforms that I think would, would maybe hurt. I think would certainly hurt Twitter more than Facebook so then you have to look at it in a cronious sort of way, which are they making the calculation that, well, if we're going to be regulated, better be our regulations and we'll be in charge of it. And we'll have this revolving door between our company and government. And we'll know all the people on the committee that decide this liability protection. And that'll be bad for our competitors in a very classic cronious sort of way. Um, what about the the multinational character of these companies, right? Because um, most of these companies are uh, not, you know, they're, they're not just operating in the United States. They're obviously global companies. Um, And we've seen battles between essentially an enormously powerful multinational company and the government, 
right, of uh, the nation of a particular. So we've seen it in Australia, I believe we've seen it, um, definitely seen it. Obviously, China throws the Chinese Communist Party throws its weight behind and, and essentially says you're not going to operate in our market unless you follow these rules that help the CCP censor information to our own people. And most tech companies, although Facebook notably, notably accepted, I think, um, have been happy to follow those rules, even as they complain about, you know, working, for example, with the U.S. military. Um, they're happy to right. follow those rules for the CCP. Um, you know, but, but do, you, do you fear that these companies could become powerful enough that maybe not perhaps in the context of like China or the United States, but if you're a smaller country, uh, that you essentially don't have that national power to, to regulate or to change how a company does business as, as you know, part of a polity deciding on what, what rules that society wants to follow. Do, do you worry about like this sort of multinational character of some of these these uh, companies and that they might their power might eventually dwarf the power, especially of smaller nations to actually engage with them? Toward the end of my book, I talk about national security, which, they, OK, so there's a category where I, I think um, if regulation is necessary, it's more appropriate. Uh, I think there's you know, our government has a legitimate, uh, the, the legitimate function of our government is to deter, deter violence internally and protect the country from external threats of violence. Um, I, I think obviously th these companies are making some, some of these calls are very difficult. Um, obviously they make, they, they make the calls wrong, I think, a decent amount of the time. But even with the, so Google, for instance, right, having a, ver so they had a version of Google for China that is censored where you can't, you know, find out um, information contrary to the wishes of the, of the authoritarian communist government. And I, I mean, I would, I would turn this question to you. I think it's a hard question, just if, even from the standpoint of let's forget Google's bottom line, which at the end of the day is really what they're, <laughs> what is, what matters most to them just from the standpoint of like, what is better for freedom and society? Would we rather have no Google in China or the, the censored version of Google? And I, obviously you can make a case we should not negotiate with authoritarian regimes. Absolutely not. It is, it is totally wrong to, to meet this demand and Google should not do it. And maybe we should even prohibit Google from doing it. I understand that argument. There's also an argument that well, then they're just going to have, then the people of China will have access just to even less information. That is who is being hurt by this policy, the people of China. It would be better to, to give them some version of Google than no version of Google. Obviously, the ideal is to give them a version of Google that, that is not censored whatsoever, but we can't do that. So we give them the version we can, and then maybe they still become a more, uh, from, from, you know, kind of osmosis being able to read about some things that the that the government hasn't censored, they become a more a more uh, liberal or, or or democratic or or or, or free nation, and and you know somehow um, uh, uh, there's there's some kind of gradual revolution or, or, or reforming of the government's policies. Like I I don't know I don't know where I land on that. I think it's a I think it's a legitimately hard call, and I don't really blame Google for being unsure about which way they should do it. So there are some really difficult, genuinely difficult questions. I mean, Facebook, I write about in the book, Facebook is this very, 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 very important communication platform in, in a lot of places in the world where, where they, like Facebook is the internet. Um, and that can be good 
because people who don't have the internet at all, it, it, it's bad for them. Like the introduction of the internet is good. It's like the introduction of the wheel. You learn a lot. Your life is a lot better in many ways. But then also, so for instance, in Myanmar, where there was this kind of like mini genocide going on because the, the, the military, the legitimate government of Myanmar used Facebook to, to, to initiate a genocide of the Muslim minority population. And Facebook had a, no idea what was going on because it didn't have anyone in the company who spoke, uh, who spoke the language. And it was really bad. So, I, I mean, I'm, I don't have a sad, I, I'm perfectly willing to consider what government can do or should do in its responsibility to our citizens and, and you know, to protect lives and to promote um, human freedom and flourishing. So I'm not, if, unlike some of the other things we just talked about, where I really don't see a role for government, it, like in a, in a sort of ideological and pragmatic sense, here I'm saying, okay, what do we need to do? But then I don't actually know what that is or, 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 or think that necessarily anyone else does either. But, and I'm, just to wrap up that point, we ought to be careful because obviously what, authoritarian places like China do to their communications company is aggressively regulate them and tell them what they're allowed to say. So we don't want to be, you know, we, we say we're doing it for the right reasons and the right concerns, but we ought to be careful that we don't, I mean, they also think they're doing it for the right reasons. Right? Every, 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 every person has that, has that. Well, I, I'm, I'm bossing them around. I'm using, you know, the ring for good, but using the ring is always an act of evil. Um, Lord of the Rings metaphor here, obviously. Um, I can tell you, you played a lot of video games as a kid. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. everybody in DC is uh, full of yeah. Lord of the Rings references. You're uh, aware of the, the, the many dungeons and dragon circles that surround, uh, the groups of, uh, people we hang out with. Yeah. Um, no, but it's, you know, speaking of China and, and of these complicated questions of, and, and I agree with you, they're, they're at least until recently, I, I, I guess my perspective is much more cynical as to whether these companies actually advance liberalization in a place like China. Um, I think that that thesis with regard to economics has been proven largely completely the opposite of, um, completely the opposite thing happened, which is that their economic growth enabled their increasing projection of their their values of the CCP, both on their own people and on the world, um, as opposed to creating liberalization that we thought would open up the country and have them join, um, you know, join in a more um, productive sense with the rest of the world. But, um, you know, speaking of China and these companies, one of the biggest fears or one of the biggest problems, that, and I agree with you that it's, it's complicated and I don't know exactly what a legislative fix for this would look like, or if there is a legislative fix, because um, it seems to me that the legislative fixes are, are very heavy handed, um, perhaps justified, perhaps not. But what we're seeing develop even outside of tech companies, because I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of validity to your arguments that you've made um, both in the book and, and in various debates that you've been a part of that I've, I've listened to with folks who are in favor of regulating big tech. And that fundamental argument is you don't have a right to a Twitter account. Right. Um, you, you, it's this is not part of your First Amendment right. This is not how we've traditionally conceived uh, of your right to speak. You don't get to like use somebody's platform in the same way that you don't get to like force somebody to sell you the paper and the ink to to write down what you want, or you don't get to force the publisher to publish your book. Right? They have to decide what they want. Um, you know, to to use their platform to publish. Um, but. When it starts, to, when you do start to get this monoculture, 
Mm-hmm. Um, not just between all of the different tech companies. Of course, this is in the context of the tech companies. It looks like Donald Trump not just getting kicked off of Twitter, but getting kicked off of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and like uh, you know Twitch and you know a thousand other um, a thousand other social media sites specifically. But even beyond the social media context, when it starts to bleed into other aspects, right? It seems to me there's a more fundamental quote unquote collusion that isn't really covered by our antitrust law because it's not economic collusion to try to drive up the price for the customer, right? It's, it's not really right. to harm, um, you know, in dollars and cents terms to harm the customer. So our antitrust law, at least as currently constituted, doesn't cover something like this. But what you do have is a sort of cultural coordination where, as you say, the vast majority of employees who work at these corporations, uh, they have a particular political point of view. And not only that, they think that those who disagree with them about a whole host of issues are deplorables and, and their voices are dangerous and lead to domestic insurrection or whatever else. Um, and they feel they have a duty to suppress those ideas or that information and what you end up happen, hap, what ends up happening is all of these independent companies that allegedly do represent competition in a given market start to look like they're all turning down the, in this case, the use um, and, the, and the customer base and the ad revenue. But in in a more traditional case, might be just the dollars where you go to you know the hardware store to spend to buy something. Um, they look like they're they're turning down those dollars in favor of maintaining a united front on a cultural issue. And that starts to look to me, you know, not to compare the, the sort of effects necessarily, but in terms of the structure of how private entities are operating in this way, starts to look to me a little bit more like the situation um, in, in the South before the civil rights act, where even if you don't have de, like de jure laws where you don't have in some places, actual segregation laws that are coming from the government, what happens is all the hotels from, you know, Florida to Texas decide we're excluding this entire base of customers. And that's where you get the sort of green book situation where you have to really work hard to find any minor company that might be willing to actually give you this service because all of the major companies and together they represent nearly all of the market share. They have this cultural belief that they're enforcing that is excluding customers. Right. Well, but they're, they're, they're excluding customers. The customers don't pay. Users don't pay to use Facebook or Twitter, et cetera. They, the way the companies make money is selling advertisements. So in some sense, what they're doing, I mean, again, I, they're, sometimes they're doing these things because they're dodging complaints from some of their crazy employees. So that's some of it. And I think that's bad. And we, you know, we could, <laughs> we could empower the companies, I guess, to be more heavy, to just, Fire those people. I take more of like a Netflix, um, uh, Chappelle, that whole thing attitude. Um, but some of it is just like, look, they're selling a, they're selling ads on a certain kind of kind of um, you know, this is this is what our service is like, and you should and and you should advertise uh, in our in this this curated space we've created, and advertisers want you know people of a certain age and. And, and those people have disproportionately progressive views. So they're like, they're, it's, it's, I don't know that they're saying it would be better from them, for them, for a market perspective to have these other, like 
I mean, Facebook is becoming boomer book, right? Because it's all old people who like to use it and it's going to be really bad for the company. One of the arguments I've been making recently for the reason not to like fear Facebook's dominance is I'm not sure its dominance is all that dominant in the long term because they can't attract the kind of new young users that they want. But that's what these companies are. That's how they make money. They're not charging you. They're not, they're, they're, they're making money off these advertisements. So at some point you would have to say, well, they don't have, I guess they don't have the right to do that. They have to, you know, we have to handle them differently. And again, I think some of the, like the Trump example is, is pretty, if for his entire, for almost his entire presidency, right? They do have him on all these platforms. Um, Twitter was repeatedly sued by people who argued that they, ha- they, sh- they should, they have to take, they should take Trump's content down because of the harm it was creating. And Twitter cited, this, you know, Section 230, this law Trump has, has tweeted about that it should be abolished, which doesn't make any sense. But they cited that as a, as a reason they could keep him up on the platform. I think far from treating him unfairly, they probably, uh, they probably gave him more leniency than they would have someone else who had tweeted some of the things he had said. And you're right. At, at the very end, they had finally had enough and they took him down. I, I, I can't. I can't fault the decision in the moment. I, I, if it were me running things, I would probably reinstate him in the fullness of time, which I think they have committed to doing. But, you know, I hear this a lot from the like, well, if it, it should be treated, it's like a, it should be like a public utility and then they can't do this sort of thing. But things that are public utilities have, can have some rules, right? You can, you can be thrown off a train for starting a fight with someone for generally like bad conduct. So I think some of these cases, that case, including, was a case of generally bad conduct that I, I cannot fault the social media company for taking some action on. We don't actually want, no one does, even everyone who says it should be the most kind of maximally free speech, unregulated regime, no one actually wants that in practice. Everyone wants some level of moderation. I, like, I'll have these conversations, I was having this conversation with, um, with Jason Miller, who's launching some new... Uh, on Rising, which I was guest hosting, and he he was launching or has launched some new social media site. And he's like, no, this is going to be the free speech site. You know, you can really say whatever. And I was like, well, what about harassment and pornography and, and spam and all these? Like, well, none of this, none of this. Absolutely, we're not going to have that. At some point, there will always come some point where it's like, well, but is this piece of content this or is it this? On what line does it fall? And different human beings will make a different call. And we're going to have to learn to live with that because there, there, there will always be cases of moderation that are contentious. Now, I think some of them are not contentious and they made bad. The Hunter Biden thing was a terrible call on social media's part. It was so bad a call. They admitted it was the wrong call like the next day or shortly thereafter, at least. Um, so it, 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 it's incumbent on us as sort of independent fact checker type people to criticize the bad decisions they make. But some of these decisions are genuinely hard and the whole, well, no, it should just be it should just be according to this like very broad free speech principle. But people people do want some level of moderation. It's not, like it's it's it, that is that is the user experience. A lot of users actually do want. And that's what they're trying to give them. I totally agree with you that people do want some level of moderation um, and that we disagree about what that level should be. Um, but what worries me is that it isn't really this this like because I think the way you represented it, it's that each of these actors, um, various different tech companies, they're all sort of making these tough calls. And that aspect of it is true. And that they're doing it substantially differently. And that it is like, uh, you know, something more like the the normal debate in society. I mean, even off of social media, we 
we have boundaries on what's considered acceptable speech, right? Um, it, it, and I've made this point multiple times before on this pod, but you know, it's never been good for your career to show up to work with wearing a Nazi armband. Like, even before quote unquote cancel culture, which is what your, your right. first book was about, um, people were getting fired for showing up um, or advocating something so far out of what was considered acceptable discourse that private companies were, were taking um, or basically saying, no, we don't want to represent this view to our customers and we're not going to permit you to work for us. I think what is worrying now more to me is not that there are boundaries around discourse, but who is setting them and the fact that all of these people involved, whether that's on the government regulatory side, as you point out, or whether that's the people who are in the C-suite and then to some extent, the, the people who are coming up behind them and the employees of these organizations, um, these private companies, my problem is they all come out with very similar answers to that question. And it strikes me that having that group of people essentially in charge of what the boundaries of discourse are by virtue of together. And I understand economically, they don't have, they're not one unit, mm -hmm. but culturally they kind of are. And so we have such similar views on this that I feel like we're handing, instead of having this societal debate about where the boundaries of appropriate discourse are and, you know, the difference between spam or pornography and, and an unpopular opinion, I don't think those things have black and white answers, but I, I, I'm worried about who's in the discussion to make those decisions. Because it seems to me right now, it's only people who essentially really agree with each other already about where those boundaries are. There are, well, I, I agree and I disagree. There are some, well, I, I think I'm, I more agree with you than disagree, but there are some differences in how, like, for instance, pornography is allowed on Twitter, not on Facebook uh, platforms. Um, so there are some differences Ted like Cruz's that. Ted Cruz's uh, eternal lament. That, <laughs> right. that little like that he has, I assume, an intern late at night right. like, accidentally hit the porn right, thing. Right, 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 Anyway, continue with your much yes. more serious point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the, or, and uh, um, there's, um, there's differences in, and, the, the, you know, there's differences in terms of, so Twitter is, I, I think, disproportionately important to um, the class of people, the U and I class of people, the DC, New York, Politico, journalism type. Yeah, journalists love Twitter. It's their favorite platform. I, I'm one of them. Twitter is my favorite platform. Absolutely get it. It speaks to us in some way. It's, it's hard to say exactly what it's like. You and I are the same, are same age. So we've had the same, like AOL Instant Messenger was very important to me. Then MySpace was very important to me. And then Facebook was, but I'm not really, I don't really care that much about Facebook now. It's not somewhere I like to spend a lot of time. I do like to spend a lot of time on Twitter and I like Instagram and I don't really get TikTok and Snapchat. Like that's just my natural kind of social media evolution. A lot of people my age probably have a similar evolution, but then a lot of people are different. Um, a lot of people really congregate around. I mean, Facebook is obviously much, much, much bigger and has this both, I, I think, within our own country is a space for political conversations among people not involved in politics. And then also a place for just conversations in general in developing parts of the world. So the, the, maybe the, the moderation or the sentiments behind the sites end up are, are, are somewhat similar, but they still seem like sort of spontaneously curated spaces or spaces for different groups of people to have kind of different norms. And, and, and then when it gets to enforcement, maybe it's similar, but it's not like, it's not always like that. You're going to like, you're, you're going to generally counter, you know, you're going to counter 
relatives saying semi-crazy things sometimes about politics more on like that's where I'm going to find that kind of thing on Facebook. I don't really want to see that kind of thing that much. It doesn't matter to me. So I'm on Twitter. Um, and also these, you know, every bad, mo- so, so many of moderation decisions go like, well, why is, you know, why is this X person, why is X piece of content still on when piece, Y piece of content got taken down and Y piece of content much, uh, uh, X piece, the, the one still up, uh, appears to violate the rules much more than the one they took down. This is the kind of hypocrisy. Uh, and I'm, I'm hugely motivated by hypocrisy arguments, so I get it. But it's usually just that, well, they didn't see the other thing yet. Like someone could, like they're not reviewing all this stuff and then deciding what is allowed to go on the site. A world without Section 230 might be a world where they did that. But they're not like YouTube can't. They're, there's a, a gazillion new hours of video like every minute. There's no way they could watch it all and then say, well, this is accordant with our rules, this is going to go up. So I actually think the, the, if it looks like the moderation is, is the sim is similar, it's because there's probably a small group or small or bigger on some platforms group of like militant woke people who report the same kinds of content on Twitter and on YouTube and on Facebook. And then conservatives say, well, why, why is this disproportionately targeting us? Like, well, you're probably not flagging that much content. They, their whole, their like ideology demands that they report people for saying and doing the wrong thing. So they're out there doing that. And then action is being taken when it, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not bias as much on the part of the moderators, but bias on the part of the user base that is hostile to speech, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think one of the the most important points that you really remind us um, about in this book is not just the importance of social media to advancing um, unpopular ideas, um, but also that a lot of the problems that we do find in social media are extensions of problems we find in ourselves and in, in human nature. And uh, I, I do agree with you, even though we've been, uh, you know, having this sort of lively pushback or whatever for the last 45 minutes. I, I do agree with you that we should be careful not to conflate uh, sort of problems of human nature that are largely unsolvable and will pop up in all kinds of contexts with problems that are specifically derivative of social media and of this new technology. And we shouldn't conflate those, those two things and, and get panicked about them. But uh, Robbie Suave, standing athwart panic, yelling stop always. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. And you can, you can check out Robbie's book, Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook or the Future, as well as his first book, Panic Attack, and his writing and reporting over at reason.com. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to istepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org, all those tech companies. Uh, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.